Hello and welcome to episode two of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. I am Jeff Sackman and with me is my co-host Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. I should just say for the record, I say co-host and that's one of those words that, that sounds like you're saying my colleague is a nice way of saying secretary or assistant or something and that is most definitely not what's going on here. It's, if anything, the opposite. Um, and what we want to talk about this week is half of our name, actually. We, we called this, this podcast Dangerous Exponent, partly because I think that sounds clever and I bullied Carl into it, but partly because it seems like a good description of, of how pandemics work uh, with exponential spread and so on. And we want to focus specifically on those exponents. So, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't stopped playing this episode yet, now is a good time. There's nothing really you know, gets people excited, like, like talking about math for an hour. But thinking about exponents, the, the big number that we've been hearing about from pretty close to day one with the pandemic has been R0. I know some people are saying R0. Um, I might end up saying RO because I'm, I'm dumb like that. But we're going to go with R0 as, as Americans. And there's been variations on that. There, there are other, other numbers, exponents and otherwise, that people look at. But let's start by just defining our terms. So, Carl, uh, let, let's give me a little background on on R0, what is it, what does it mean? How do we use it? Let's go for it. Well, part of what we're always gonna do on this show probably is problematize these definitions and, and point out all the uncertainties and questions. That said, I think the simplest way to define R0 is how many people on average, let's call it a mean, not a median, does any one person infected with the novel coronavirus infect in turn? When we are in some kind of starting situation, some kind of pre-pandemic state situation, when we haven't taken any measures as a society to try to reduce the rate at which the virus spreads. I'm going to stop there and, and let us sort of comment on on what that might mean. And, and you can also um, improve on that definition. Yeah, so it, it's the, the measure of how fast it spreads. It's, it's an exponent. And one thing that I want to point out before we get into the difference between R0 and, and RT is that R0, it feels like this, this scientific constant. And in, in one sense, it is. But it's... It, partly because it's hard to learn, partly because of social factors, it's, it's never a, a, a constant. If you look up other diseases, um, SARS, we have a, an R0 between 2 and 5. HIV is listed as having an a R0 between 2 and 5. There's, there's always these pretty substantial ranges. Part of that is, like I say, because we don't exactly know, but part of it is that there, there are social factors even before lockdowns and other measures get started. Like the the rate at which a disease spreads is going to be very different in rural Norway than it's going to be in New York City just as a, because of how many people everyone comes in contact to on a daily basis. No one in rural Norway is ever going to get in a crowded elevator because there aren't any elevators there. Um, you're just not going to see that many people and that, that reduces the potential spread. So, so you, you do need to understand what the, what the parameters are even for sort of the, the number at the starting gate, which is what R0 is. So there's no, there's no one pure number. There's always going to be a range. And then 
once the other social factors start with with lockdown measures and social distancing and, and other reactions people take to a disease spreading then then it starts changing but then we start getting into other numbers so so carl is that is that fair have i done my part in problematizing um r0 so far absolutely I, I, let me do my part to just add to it even within the same society where maybe many of the social factors are somewhat fixed over time, the, the very same virus could have a very different R0 depending on what's happened in the recent and distant past. So even in some cities that are as dense as New York City where you might have as many interactions, a closer brush in the past with SARS could have affected kind of default behavior in terms of wearing masks, even when not sick during a period when there are a lot of respiratory infections going around in terms of avoiding other people, including going to work when you have uh, certain symptoms. So there are, there are certain factors also with like sanitation, hand washing, uh, whether it's societally acceptable to, to greet each other in certain ways that could certainly affect how uh, fertile ground a dangerous virus finds in a society to quickly spread before there are those broader measures directly targeting it as opposed to infections like it yeah so so there's all these all these parameters that need to be considered and whatever the parameters are r zero is talking about day zero so the idea is before people are are responding to this specific concern this is this is what the rate of spread will be um so so we have these numbers between two and three i guess for for the coronavirus uh there have been various estimates but but it, it's similar to, to some of the other diseases i mentioned before uh which sounds pretty serious but then depending on location and, and habits and all sorts of new factors, then it starts changing as soon as politicians start locking down, as soon as people start wearing masks or staying away or just being afraid or whatever. So so then the, the new term, which is one you hear more these days that we're well into the pandemic is RT, which is T is, is for time, the the rate of transmission at a given time, or usually the way it's 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 used now is the rate of transmission now, which is going to be very different. So So Carl, talk about how how RT differs from R0 and what it has to tell us now. Sure. It, th this is basically that same exponent or that same number of people on average, any one person will infect at this, at a certain moment in time. And that moment is T is greater than zero. So we're past that state where nobody has specifically done something because of this specific infection. Now people have. And in fact, if you look at, various kinds of data in the US, it, it seems like people's individual actions or the collective result of a lot of people's actions preceded the measures by politicians, or at least the, the, the start of the decline of activities that would bring people into close contact with each other and that would keep R at a high number. Um, that, that decline happened more spontaneously, more in reaction to news stories, including the, sh the end of the NBA season after a number of infections, for instance. So RT is w what's going on with R now that we either individually or as a society uh, 
are trying to do something to stop the spread. It's worth noting that even though RT is our best guess at what's happening now, it's the T isn't really now. <laughs> we don't we don't know exactly how many infections we have right now, partly because people are asymptomatic for a little while. Testing takes time. Test results take time. Data gathering takes time. People making pretty data visualizations online. It takes some time for them to do their thing. So one one site for the U.S. that shows this is RT.Live. Another one that shows RT around the world, countries around the world as well as various subregions is metrics.covid19-analysis.org. That's a mouthful, but it's a, a cool site that covers the whole world. That one says it has a lag of five days. So it, it, there, there's various statistical techniques you can use to, to get closer to now, and that falls under the umbrella of something called now casting. But then you start, it's less based on the data and it's more increasingly more based on various assumptions. And that in, introduces more complexity and that, that's a whole thing that we're not really going to get into here. But we have we have all these estimates for RT and looking at RT.live, we have this range in various US states of RTs between about 0.8 and 1.2, broadly speaking. Um, so, so the target is 1.0. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Um, Carl, it, oh, some politicians have explicitly targeted this 1.0. Boris Johnson uh, gave a big speech about that, pointing at a graph and saying, this is the number we need to get to. Um, others have been less direct, but 1.0 seems to be a target. Is that a valid target? I mean, this idea that we need to get to the point where people are on average giving giving the virus, if they have the virus, if they're giving it to on average less than one more person each, like, is that a good public health target? I mean, it depends so much on where you are in your your local pandemic. I, it, it's a good target in an absolute, the lower are the better, but if you're if you're in a situation like the US or at least many states in the US where you're out of or close to out of hospital capacity you you certainly need to get it under 1 because that's when the number of new cases starts declining but you probably ought to be targeting something quite a bit lower to bring down the number of cases quickly and get the healthcare system back in control. And there's also a risk from a messaging point of view of saying, if we, if we, if we get it under one, we've succeeded because it needs to stay under one for some time, especially if it's still close to one to actually drive the numbers down to where potentially not only is the healthcare system able to handle the number of cases, but also that you're able to uh, trace the contacts and trace backward the contacts of new infections and uh, really contain future outbreaks by, by getting the number low enough. If you look at New York, where I live, um, you know, the, the pandemic was just completely out of control and the hospital system was overwhelmed. and death rates from the disease but also from other causes were were way higher than usual for that, that time of year in march and april and then starting in late march according to rt.live new york state got its rt down below one and it kept it below one for months and that was what was key in a very quiet summer of covid in new york 
Whereas if we had just, you know, dipped below one for a bit, we would have been back to an unsustainable situation pretty quickly. Right, and that, that that's the trick that getting getting below one means you're generating fewer cases on, uh, but it doesn't mean you're generating zero cases or anywhere close to zero. And in a case with a fairly severe outbreak like like New York, um, if you're at 0.9, that means you're getting a lot of new infections on a daily or weekly basis, and you're still putting a lot of pressure on uh, on the health system. So it, it's tough to know what exactly the target should be. So looking at RT Live now, it, it, it gives RT estimates for every U.S. state, and the range right now, this is, looks like the data was last updated on Tuesday, December 1st. Uh, so right now, North Dakota is the lowest on the list with an estimate of 0.91. Um, Oregon is an outlier with an estimate of 1.54, and then there's a couple states at one point, or close to 1.3, and then most every other state's at 1.15 or lower. That's New York State at 1.15. And I mean, I, I deal with data a lot. Um, not so much R0s and RTs in my daily life, but look at a lot of data visits like this. And can you do a plural of data viz? I don't know. But if you look at all these numbers centered around one, is there a big difference between 0.9 and 1.15? I mean, it, it, the data viz on, the, on this website has the ones below one in green and the ones above one in red as if there's a, a real meaningful difference. And obviously you want the number of new cases to go down and not go up. But I mean, how much, of, how big of a difference does it make between 0.9 and, and 1.1, Carl? Yeah, it's, it, I think one of the reasons this is so hard for this being containing the pandemic generally and also this this topic of RT, that it can be so hard for people and, and for public health officials is that the difference in terms of behavior and, and measures you've taken could be really small because this is kind of linear, right? Like if you, if let's say in North Dakota, RT has fallen from 1.15 in early October to 0 0.91, 0 0.91 now. So not an enormous decline, a, a quarter per person infected. And that could come back, come down to decreasing your number of contacts on average by 20, 25% or your, your, your potential exposure by 20, 25%, your risk, your, or increasing mask wearing or, but, but kind of on the margin, like not enormous changes, but going from one side of that RT equals one line to the other, and then staying there for a while, even a few weeks when we're talking about a, a virus that seems to have a generation time of about five days. So these infections would typically happen within five days. Um, you know, that, that exponential change can add up quickly. So you've taken a very subtle change in the average person's behavior. And for North Dakota, which had one of the most out of control outbreaks, it can be the difference between, you know, much higher mortality rate because of lack of hospital resources and hospital workers who are healthy and 
on the other hand, starting to lower the case numbers and potentially getting the outbreak under control, but I don't think it, it quite is yet. So it, it is this, this classic translation of pretty small changes to really big ones uh, in a way that can be very difficult to manage, especially when potentially people's and society's behavioral changes are in, in turn reacting to changes in RT. Oh, things are going down, things are getting better, we can loosen up a bit. So how well do people understand this? And, and I realize this is a, a, a difficult and, and broad question, especially since we're talking about different classes of people. I just mean, say, decision makers and non-decision makers at the political level. But uh, a lot of people are looking at these numbers and they're, they're coming to conclusions based on these numbers. But one, one thing that, one issue that has come up in behavioral economics is this idea of an, an exponential bias that people don't understand exponents very well or very intuitively. So the classic example that comes up in a lot of these behavioral economics papers is is compound interest that a lot of people just don't really get it. They understand that you, you get money by leaving money in the bank and at interest. I guess that's not really the example anymore since you don't get interest when you leave most money in the bank, but you get the idea. Um, but compound interest, that that amount increases with time. It's an exponential, just like RT, just like the, the spread of a disease. But a lot of people don't get it. So when they, they look at these numbers, they're thinking 0.9 or 1.1 or 2 or whatever, that they're linear, that, that more people are going to get it with time. But the idea that the pandemic could get out of control and overwhelm local resources, that's not what they're thinking. That's not how they're going to react to an RT above one. Um, and I mean, presumably politicians are subject to the same sort of biases. So, so Carl, do you think people are, are seeing these numbers and, and understanding them? Are they reacting to them in the right way? I don't know. I mean, the, the sites that we, we're looking at and citing, which are quite impressive works of data analysis and, and visualization, I don't think are the top sites that even people who are looking for numbers on this are checking. And if you look at the, um, you know, the the main media sites that are tracking the pandemic, they're not typically explicitly showing RT. They're showing numbers that reflect RT. So I think people are are following case counts, hospitalization numbers, and deaths more, uh, and. And I think it's partly because of what what you just cited that the, these numbers are kind of hard to process and somewhat counterintuitive. Like a lot of the states that have the lowest, uh, we should say, you know, most likely estimate or, or central estimate of RT are the ones with the worst outbreaks, but they're also the ones that have potentially had to react the most, maybe the ones that have a tiny bit of herd immunity. So, you know, North Dakota from RT looks like it's doing best of all the states and Oregon looks like it's by far got the biggest outbreak, but we know that Oregon has the fastest growth um, on a percentage basis and, and North Dakota still has an enormous number of uh, cases per per capita. So I think that it it there are a lot of reasons this, this doesn't resonate with the public or it doesn't really make, make sense to the public, but it is a a pretty good tracker potentially if we could sort of line it up with with different measures uh, of what people tried to change policy-wise and then of changes in public 
behavior and, and whether they had an effect. So um, I think I think some people are certainly watching it, but for a lot of people, it's it's just not as going to be nearly as intuitive as as counts. So sticking with this this idea of exponential bias, let's uh, that all sounds reasonable to me. People aren't looking at the same websites we are. They aren't obsessing over RT, but there is this characteristic of of new viruses that you know they have the potential to spread to everyone they're going to spread at a certain rate and that rate is at least barring pretty substantial social change that that rate is going to be exponential um so that's the danger that you know these things get out of control every every sort of pandemic horror movie ever made is all about the the infection getting loose or coming out of the lab and all of a sudden 10 people have it and then they get on a plane and then a hundred people have it, and you know, then disaster strikes, and you know everybody's dead. So fortunately, it isn't quite that bad in real life. But the, the the exponential aspect is what makes it so scary. And one of the articles that we we passed around before recording this was a pretty long piece on the the BBC website about um, an academic explaining this ex exponential bias I raised, and saying people would have reacted differently, like. We always hear about these middle Americans in the news who aren't wearing masks and aren't taking the virus seriously, even still in North Dakota. Um, if they understood exponential bias better, would they be taking it more seriously? Or to flip the question, like, would that have, would this be less of a problem or be spreading less quickly if we could somehow teach people to 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 not have this exponential bias? I think it could have an impact. I think there's also a, a different kind of cognitive bias at play that, that is maybe amplified or exacerbated because of exponential bias. And I don't know the name for this, and, and maybe this isn't a real cognitive bias, but th this idea of, oh, that's not really a problem, therefore, er, let me do it narrative in more of the sequence it happens. We take preventative measures as as a group, whatever group. The bad thing we're trying to prevent doesn't happen or, or is mitigated. Oh, that thing isn't as bad or as scary as we thought. We don't need to take preventative measures. I don't know exactly what to call that, but that seems like a much bigger problem with exponential bias because if you if you did the the first step correctly and you, you really nailed those preventative measures, then the problem never had a chance to grow exponentially and quickly and, and become a very large problem and, and an outbreak. And so you never got to see it firsthand at its full horrifying scale. Uh, whereas if it was more of a, a linear process, that difference would be smaller between what you saw and what it could have become. Is that a real bias, Jeff? I think so. I, I, I don't know if it, if it has a name the, the way you've described it, but it's it's pretty closely related to the tragedy of the commons. You know, it, it, this isn't the way that tragedy of the commons would typically be described, but you know, the, the idea is, you know, uh, imagine there there's one place in a village where everyone grazes their herd, and for any individual, like there's grass there. Why not just use the grass that's there? But if everyone in the village uses that that grass to graze their herd, then uh, then the grass eventually dies. No one has the available grass, and everyone loses. So something that 
something that everyone had incentives to do actually has negative incentives if the group all does them. That's the tragedy of the commons. Um, and the, the way you describe it, that you do something, it doesn't have negative effects, or you, you end up not seeing the virus spread, you're going to come to certain conclusions about that. So you go to graze your herd in the, the public grazing area. It doesn't have negative conclusions. There's still lots of grass there. Uh, and you come back, still lots of grass. You come back, still lots of grass. And then one day there's no more grass for anyone. Uh, you've learned the wrong lesson from, from this data that there's the grass is going to keep growing. You're still going to be able to graze your herd there. So it's not the same thing, but I think it's very relevant. And it's a decent segue to... To what for me is the really exciting part of this discussion, which is that there, there's more parameters to describing the pandemic. We've only talked about R0 and RT up to this point, but another variable is referred to as K, which is the amount of dispersion, which the message behind K is that not everyone spreads the virus equally. In fact, it's a, a pretty wide dispersion in how much people spread the virus. This is one of the reasons we end up with these super spreader events that, uh, as a general rule, we can say 20% of infected people generate 80% of the cases. You've probably heard of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 the rule. That crops up in a lot of a lot of different contexts. It might not be 80-20, it might be 90-10 or 85-15 or whatever, but the idea is the same, that an R of 2 doesn't mean that if I get the virus, I'm going to give it to two people, each of whom are going to give it to two people. What it means is that I have a chance of giving it to a lot of people. I have a chance of giving it to zero people. The most common result might be that I will give it to zero people, um, lockdown or no. But because of that risk of giving it to a lot of people, of being a super spreader, uh, that, that that's what generates the spread. That's what averages out among a lot of infected people to an, to an R of, of two or three. And to me, Carl, that, that seems like it makes all of this discussion of biases even more important. That it, if people are not sure about masks, they're not sure about you know waiting to get a haircut or waiting to go to the dentist or whatever, uh, they're going to have all this approximate evidence that people aren't giving it to each other. That if, if I have it, I'm not going to spread it. But then there's this small percentage chance that I will spread it to everyone, that I will be a health crisis all on my own. So to me, that I think that makes me more careful, uh, knowing that you know the worst case scenario is so bad. I don't want to be like patient thirty one. I think it was in Korea who infected everyone in her her mega church. But um, do you think everyone would react to that the same way? I mean, doesn't this this make the some of these bias discussions even even more pertinent because people don't know how to understand the evidence that they're seeing? Yeah, I think it's definitely a harder thing to get your head around. I I think it, it relates to R in, in some interesting ways. Uh, and partly because being that, that person who ends up super spreading involves two separate factors, which I think we're, we ought to get into. One is behavior and one is biological. So there may be certain intrinsic things about me that make me more likely to be a super spreader. And by the way, if I could get tested and know if I were more prone to being a super spreader, I would want to know that information. And presumably it'd be true for coronavirus and for other potential future infections we might be facing in our lifetimes. Uh, 
and you know that 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 would be sort of like a useful thing for people to know about themselves biologically like their blood type and and that it could help affect their behavior but there's that's the other piece the behavior if you have the biological components to make yourself a spreader but you don't ex expose yourself to anybody then you're not going to spread the virus and with with rt I've had moments in New York, including when things were pretty calm this summer, when I would be taking what I thought were a lot of precautions, not as many as some, and I would go outside with a mask and be avoiding people and see like a big group of people together, close together, um, without masks, and think, you know, what I'm doing is making it possible for them to do what they're doing. And that, that basically RT is an average of all of these things, but it's it's not a symmetrical average in that I can only bring risk and exposure for myself down to zero, but somebody else, a potential super spreader because of their behavior and potentially also their biology, could bring up risk and exposure as high as they want, basically. And we, we have parties in New York every night being broken up by the police of like 400 people. Um, so I think that it's it's frustrating potentially to see that whatever any one person can do not only can quickly be overwhelmed by what somebody else can do, but that it can enable it. It can make it safer because everybody else is being safer in that tragedy of the commons way. Yeah. And I, I think it might even be a little bit worse than what you described on a personal level, which is exactly what tragedy of the, com the commons is, is the, the only way to reliably bring your risk level down to zero is to stay inside and stay basically by yourself or by yourself with, with one or two other people who are also staying inside all the time uh, without exposure to other people. But those, those people you see out there not following certain basic precautions, like simply by allowing the spread to continue, that's going to increase your risk every time you go out. I mean, masks aren't 100% effective. You've probably got to go to the grocery store. Uh, even walking around on the street might have a tiny bit of bit of risk with with masks that aren't one hundred percent effective. So um, it is very frustrating. I think I mentioned in our last episode that we didn't have anything close to a mask mandate here until pretty recently uh, in Norway, and now we do. And it's I didn't wear one for a long time. Very few people were wearing them. Now that I am, I'm. <laughs> I understand why everyone else got so ticked off when they saw other people not doing it. Before, I saw people on Twitter who were mask shaming each other. I was like, okay, come on, cool it. Maybe he has a good reason. But now if I go to the grocery store and see someone not wearing a mask, like there's just this little little instinct that says, oh, that jerk, I can't believe he's doing that. He needs to, needs to you know, join the team here. Um, and I mean, the, the, there's the, the math is behind that. I mean, it... it it's, it sounds like a cliche, but we kind of all need to all need to pitch in to keep these numbers low. So, so a little let's let's talk more about this this K issue. You, you mentioned Carl that you'd like to have a test that that indicates whether you have potential for super spreading. And there's evidence there are biological factors, but if we don't have a test, presumably no one listening to this wants to be a super spreader. Uh, beyond the the basic you know wear a mask socially distance as much as possible are there are there tips we can give people to 
to not super spread? Well, it, it's pretty much contained in, in the mask and, and social distance. It, it seems from what we read, like, and, and from what I think most of our listeners have heard, like being indoors with a lot of people is 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 a risky situation. And then you can modulate that in various ways, like being indoors with a lot of people and close to them without masks, everybody talking, worse, everybody singing, um, doing it for a long time. Those, those are all things potentially to avoid. I think it's always risky to call out specific countries or states for having had success because it seems like eventually the coronavirus comes for all of them, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean their earlier success wasn't real, but it could be that there was fatigue or uh, a real push to, to loosen restrictions. But Japan has been one of the most consistently successful of, of the wealthy nations at curbing big outbreaks. And they have focused on these clusters. I mean, I think everyone has. Like, it, it seemed a little simplistic to read that Japan uniquely has focused on clusters, but it seemed like they were more focused in, in maybe a smarter way. And the article described the three C's that you want to avoid, and you might need to help me remember all of them, but I know that there's contact and that it's close, and I think the third is crowds. So, you know, in a way, some of these rules are inadvertently creating uh, potential super spreader events. I mentioned all these parties being broken up in New York State recently, and it seems like they're mostly indoors. There are hundreds of people probably to hide out and and, and be less obvious, less likely to be detected. And the people who might be attracted to those parties are probably ones who are less likely to be masked and to be careful uh, and to be quiet. And it's also hard to be quiet when you're with hundreds of people indoors. So there's probably a lot of shouting and, and singing. And, you know, that's, that's pretty scary um, every, every time I read that. And coming up with the right rules and incentives and enforcement to specifically prevent those, it seems like a real challenge. Yeah, and it's always a balance, right? Like you say, there, there, there are certain people who will, will take more risks and you can't legislate that out of existence, especially for something that's going to go on as long as, as, as this pandemic has. So one thing that's become clear with with more and more data is that most of the super spreading events we know about are happening indoors. There's the big issue with ventilation. You mentioned people needing to speak louder. And the rules on this have varied a lot from country to country. Some countries are just placing absolute limits on number of people at gatherings. Some have different numbers for indoor and outdoor. And does it seem reasonable to you to sort of allow outdoor gatherings as an outlet? I mean, maybe not a, maybe not a sold out Yankees game, but to say, you know, we're going to keep indoor gatherings limited at 50 with certain rules, but we'll allow outdoor gatherings up to 500 or something. Do you think that's a, that sort of way of thinking is a, is a compromise that might prevent some of these parties that are being broken, every, broken up every night in New York? Yeah, I think that helps. I, there, there's simply going to be a temperature limit. For, for how attractive that is. And I think New York has hit it pretty recently. I haven't seen too many people seeking any kinds of outdoor gatherings and even outdoor dining is, is really struggling. I have to uh, share, I have to share some um, Norwegian wisdom here. There's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. So 
if you're not gathering outside because of that, it's on you. It's just, it, it's not some natural law. And I've been trying to personally follow that and really gear up for this winter. Um, but I just, I think the word about indoor versus outdoor hasn't totally been absorbed. Like I think people were really good when the weather was good about making that choice when the trade-off seemed easy. But now that the trade-off seems hard, I, I imagine even Norwegians like their, their cozy indoor winter time as well. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I they, think they don't. Norwegians will only go outside. It's the, it's the Danes who are into the, the cozy indoor stuff. You're recording this from the coldest spot in Norway, right? I am recording it from the coldest spot in my apartment, but that's a different story altogether. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I, I, you, it's easy to say this word and not spell it out and be, be the ones who are embodying it. But we talked about creativity on our first episode. And I think I don't I don't think this is exactly government's role, though government can encourage it and, and maybe spotlight it. But coming up with creative ways for people to gather that are um, that are safer. I mean, hey, if you want to have a party with hundreds of people, even if you could find a venue with separate rooms and like you're, you're, you're in your room, but there's video of the, like I said, this is not actually going to be a good creative solution. I'm not going to be embodying this right now, but ways of, of reducing harm, reducing risk, acknowledging what it is that people want to do and finding safer ways for them to do it. I mean, this is, this is what decades of public health work to stem the spread of HIV had to do was was to basically acknowledge people want to have sex with each other and we need to make it safer and we need to reduce the transmission of this deadly disease when it's happening not not just tell them to not have sex so i think that there there's room to to not mask shame and not scold and not um just you know assume that you can totally prevent these gatherings but try to find ways to make them safer and less likely to be super spreader locations yeah i think that's a really important point that and the optimistic takeaway from from that is that maybe this pandemic will force politicians public health professionals to to adopt that ex sort of attitude of acceptance more broadly like the hiv example is a really good one uh, although it took an awful lot of time to to come around to the the right approaches to accepting you know, people want to do certain things and you want to make those things safer rather than just broadly say, never do these things. Uh, and you certainly can't say never see any other people. So, I mean, some of us are okay with, with adopting certain kinds of compromises where we do more Zoom calls and fewer in-person meetings, we skip parties for a year, whatever those things may be. But like you've said, there's there's lots of people who their their preferences are so different that they're not going to make the sort of responsible trade-offs we're talking about. So there, there need to be some kind of outlets. And the pessimistic way of looking at it is, if we're talking about the U.S., this is a country that's fought an expensive and futile war on drugs for, what, half a century now? So if this is a country that's only now getting around to, to legalizing marijuana in certain places by accepting that's something people are going to do and making it safer, uh, and only very, very, very gradually accepting things like like needle exchanges uh, for for heroin users, then it's going to be hard to act nimbly, quickly enough 
to to make those kind of trade-offs possible for a pandemic that's only been an issue for less than a year. I mean, did, do you see, you said we aren't really embodying that, but do you see hope for that, Carl, that maybe maybe the atmosphere is changing, that, that politicians, politicians are starting to make choices accepting that people are going to do what they're going to do and, and working around that rather than just issuing these, these broad restrictions? I'd, I'd like to be able to name an example. I, I, I can't think of great ones. I mean, it's so different from HIV, which is very much still a problem. So it's not like a solved problem, uh, but presumably would have been a m much bigger one without some of the more successful interventions. But, you know, one giant difference is there's a vaccine coming. So are there ways to tailor the messaging around what I've heard a lot casually, but maybe less so from politicians and public health officials of, we're really close, but we have to get there. You know, like if you can just wait a little longer, this is when we think it'll it'll be better. And so there's, there's at least more of an end date in sight. I, we do a whole separate episode on vaccines and, and what holding out that hope looks like and uh, all the complications with them. But you know that that's something we've never had with with HIV, and in fact, with a lot of outbreaks um, over over the years. So there there is potentially a different message of like, yeah, normally this is something you would really want to do, and you probably are going to do it to some extent. But maybe it's a little easier to hold off or find substitutes when you you know that the the celebration is at least in sight. Uh, you know, I, I also want to point out something that came out from the reading that I think is relevant to, to our conversation about exponents, which is just that because R0, RT, it's always an average, uh, when you have very few cases, if you can prevent any of these clusters from forming, these super spreader events, these, these mini outbreaks, then you can prevent the disease from actually turning into a, a full-fledged outbreak where now you do have a lot of one-on-one -on -one transmission as well as these, these larger events. And that it seems likely in retrospect that some of the worst outbreaks had some element of just bad luck, that early on there were uh, chains of these clusters that could have happened in other places but didn't. And I don't really know how introducing that kind of uncertainty, that factor of luck and bad luck changes messaging or should change messaging, but uh, I, I very much take your point that I would hope people would really not want to be the one that cause uh, an enormous cluster and potentially cause a, an outbreak or a bigger outbreak in their community. On the other hand, if they're very unlikely, I think there are a lot of people who do go ahead and, and engage in those behaviors and don't see anything bad come of them and potentially everyone at those events learns the wrong lesson. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Fortunately, we're we're preaching to the choir. I'm guessing with with our listeners, but to just to add a couple of things to to your point about the the amount of chance involved, I, I think I read that that the virus was introduced in New Zealand 277 separate times um, without causing an outbreak. Uh, I hope I have that right because it it's, it it, re it really emphasizes how much chance is involved. Um, the real danger of bringing this all all together is, you know, that that if chance is so much of a factor, then it might drive people back into the arms of organized religion, and then they'll all go to church, uh, indoor places with lots of singing, 
and poor ventilation. So then we're back to square one. Don't really think that's going to happen in a short time, but um, but you never know. So Carl, I think that that's about our our time for today and most of our outline. Remarkably enough, is there anything anything you want to send our listeners away with for episode two? Just how much uncertainty there is, even in these RT estimates. I mean, we we you started by mentioning which states are below one and which states are above, but I think pretty much every state the the uncertainty range crosses one so that makes it really tough to to tailor uh, solutions here and to, to be to be precise in in what we're doing uh, to, to bring down RT when we don't even really know is the outbreak growing or is it is it shrinking in our state yeah I mean averages are always a little unreliable and as the, the this K variable shows as well, it, it's hiding a lot of information. I mean, that's a good general rule to follow whenever you hear about an average. Uh, it's it's only the, the very most basic approximation of what you know about a population. Uh, it, it's a very limited amount of information. Some, it's better than having nothing, obviously. And if you're going to track one variable over time, maybe that's the best one to track. But, but it is just one. Um, there is uncertainty just in that one. And it does hide a lot of other characteristics, which is... Um, from an academic perspective, one of the things that makes this so interesting, and I'm absolutely fascinated by these measures of dispersion and, and power laws like the 80-20 rule, uh, they make things more interesting even when sometimes the effects are not so positive. So um, it's not the happiest note, but it's a, a good note to end up on. Carl, um, thanks for another good episode of Dangerous Exponents. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, this has been episode two of the Dangerous Exponents coronavirus podcast. You can find... Uh, Carl and I both on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. Carl is at Carl Bialik. Uh, we're DangerousExponents.com, where you can find both of our episodes, all two episodes we've recorded, as well as any future ones. I think we're on iTunes now and various other places where you can download these things. So check out our entire enormous catalog of coronavirus talk, and we'll be back with episode three pretty soon.